Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Uh, I hate to go against uh, a couple of centuries of of, uh, accepted wisdom, but I really don't think Burgoyne's defeat had that much of an impact on the eventual result, uh, the, the formation of the United States. That's Michael Barbieri. He's a longtime contributor to the journal The American Revolution and a lifetime resident of Vermont. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you today by West Home Publishing, publisher of the new book Daniel Morgan, A Revolutionary Life by Albert Louis Zamboni. In stores now. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. All of us are fans of the American Revolution. All of us are interested in the debates that surround it. That's why we're listening. But one debate I have always found to be extremely fascinating, and it has been this. Who has, which region, the rightful claim to the most historic place in North America regarding the Revolution. You can make a good case for Philadelphia. You can make a great case uh, for a place like Virginia. But what about the Northeast? New York, certainly. Boston, hard to argue. Our guest today, Michael Barbieri, is a longtime contributor to the Journal of the American Revolution. And he'll make the argument that the Champlain Corridor, although others seem to overshadow it more, very well may be the most important region while studying the American Revolution. Now, of course, we know the answer to this. We know that it's whoever you're talking to that will have the right answer. It's all interpretation. It's all argument. We understand that. In history... Nothing is set in stone. There are very few smoking guns, as we say. History is not about finding something new. It's about looking at something old in a new way. I'm a Pittsburgher. Uh, I've published two articles with the Journal of the American Revolution over the last few years. And they both involve the area in which I grew up, western Pennsylvania. Now, I'm not going to try and uh, convince you that Western Pennsylvania is the most important place uh, or region in the history of the American Revolution. I'm not going to waste your time with that, but rest assured, I could. I'm a homer, that's fine. But I guess that's the bigger question today. Is being a homer, that is having a bias toward where you live as a historian... Is that necessarily a bad thing? Of course we're proud of where we're from. Of course we know these places more intimately if we're from those places than if we're not. My guest today will tell us about where he's from. The state of Vermont. 
and his arguments are pretty convincing. He tells us a story today about empires. He talks about the development of a people using geography and economics and how that shapes a worldview. A worldview, by the way, that lasts into the 21st century. He makes some pretty bold declarations about one of the seminal events in the American Revolution. John Burgoyne's Saratoga Campaign of 1777. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the interview. Mike Barbieri is a frequent contributor to the Journal of the American Revolution and is now an educator at the Lake Champlain Maritime Museum. Welcome to the program, Mike. Well, thank you. We always like to begin with the easy ones here, Dispatches, Mike. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm, I was born and raised in Vermont. Uh, I uh, went to work for several years in a Volkswagen Audi dealership. I worked in service department and parts, and then I uh, got out of that, and I went back to college when I was about, about 40 and got a teaching license and a master's degree in history. I taught at uh, elementary and high school and college level for a while, and then I went to work at uh, um, Lake Champlain Maritime Museum for a few years, and um, <coughs> excuse me, now I'm uh, retired and uh, spending all my time doing uh, research and uh, writing. When do you think, for you, that history went from uh, just an interest into something more? Um, I've always had a, uh, an interest in, in history, even when I was, was, you know, in elementary school and younger, I had an interest in history. Um, as far as my interest in the 18th century and the American revolution, that started, you know, maybe 40 some odd years ago, a friend of mine and I were watching TV and we happened to see uh, reenactment of uh, the Lexington Concord battle and thought that, you know, that looked kind of interesting. It was a combination of both our interests in guns and history, so we started a reenactment unit, and uh, that's where I started delving into uh, the period of the American Revolution, the 18th century in general, and it's just uh, taken off from there. Now, longtime readers will recognize your name. Uh, you've written over a dozen articles for the Journal of the American Revolution. Could you talk about how that relationship started? Yeah, it just uh, I had met um, Don Hagas, uh, editor for the Journal, uh, several years ago through reenacting, and um, I had written some articles for you know a couple of magazines on the American Revolution and such, and uh, so. He contacted me uh, one day and uh, asked if I'd be interested in, uh, you know, in, in um, writing for the journal. And I said, sure. So uh, I just started in um, doing that. And I've done, I don't know, a dozen or so articles over the, uh, the couple, three years it's been around. I've had the privilege of driving throughout all parts of this country, but I especially love the Champlain River Valley. Uh, you have this great overlap of uh, early colonial French history and the Seven Years' War and, of course, the American Revolution. Now, obviously, 
Mike, you live there, but uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, the history of the region uh, of the Northeast and maybe what draws you to it? Yeah, I live here, so it, uh, you know, it, it's, I can travel within a couple hours radius of me is, is, is several historic sites that, uh, that relate to the period that, and so it's easy for me to, to just go and see the original places where some of these activities happen, some of these actions and such. But just beyond that, it's like you said, it's, it's such an interesting area and so much happened in this area and it, it just, it's, it's very active. You know, if, if you, if you study history, study the American Revolution or the 18th century in general, uh, so much comes back to the to the Northeast and the Lake Champlain Valley in particular. That uh, so that's really what fascinates me about the, the the area. When you look at this region, the history of it, not just the importance to the Revolution, but the importance to the development of colonial America, uh, you could start that discussion even into the 17th century, I think we could probably say. Uh, could you kind of detail the history of this region leading up to the Revolution? Yeah, it, it's like you said, it does start in the uh, in the uh, 17th century. Samuel de Champlain came into Lake Champlain from the St. Lawrence out of Canada in 1609, so he was visiting it. But uh, geographically, you can... Follow, you can go from the New York City area all the way to the St. Lawrence up by, by Montreal. You can travel at 325 miles or so almost entirely on water. There's about 25 or 30 miles of portages, but, uh, it's basically, it's a, it's a extensive water highway, an interstate, if you will. Um, and that's what makes the, uh, makes it so critically important for not only for the whites, the Europeans that eventually settle the area, but Native Americans as well. They, they utilize, utilize that highway. One of the reasons I'm always uh, up north, I'm recording this in Pittsburgh, uh, in Vermont, is because I attend the seminar in the American Revolution and the War College of the Seven Years' War at Fort Ticonderoga in New York. Uh, but when you're in there and you you're standing on the shores of Lake Champlain. Right across the lake uh, is Vermont. And that lake, that landform, it always strikes me because that view really hasn't changed uh, as far as humans are concerned. Uh, could we talk about why Lake Champlain was so vital to the development of the region? Sure. It, uh, it, like I mentioned about the, you know, the Native peoples, the Indians were using it as a highway, but it also uh, functioned as something of a boundary between um, different uh, Native peoples groups. Um, you know, one group over the, the um, Iroquois uh, nations, six or seven, five or six nations um, on the New York side, and then uh, you've got a different group on the New England side of Lake Champlain on the Vermont side and eastward. So it. it forms kind of a boundary, uh, the lake does. And once the, the uh, Europeans came in and began to settle the region, it served almost the same function. It, uh, to the 
to the east was the uh, all the I guess the individual autonomy of New England, but to the west is New York, which was um, a very aristocratic, almost a feudal society on the New York side. And um, as time went on, the as you said, the French came in first into the Lake Champlain area, came in out of Canada, and settled, um, you know, developed some of the lake into the um, early 1700s, early 18th century. And they were coming down from the north. The British started moving in from the south. And eventually they encountered each other. So you have extensions of European wars happening in North America. And because of those wars, uh, there was minimal settlement in, in the Champlain Valley and in the interior of, of New England, basically because of the wars. Uh, but with the end of the French and Indian War, uh, that that opens up the British win the French and Indian War, and that ends in 1763. Uh, so the British now control Canada as well as the colonies to the south. So settlement takes off in this region, and you have the Connecticut River Valley um, to the between Vermont and New Hampshire, providing a highway up out of uh, eastern. Massachusetts and Connecticut, and then you've got the Hudson River and Lake Champlain providing a highway um, from western Massachusetts and Connecticut, and they expand up into what's now in Vermont, basically, and, and um, eastern New York, and uh, then at about in the 1760s, early 60s, right at the end of the French and Indian War, the British built the Crown Point Road, which ran from Charlestown, New Hampshire, across Vermont to Crown Point and Fort Ticonderoga, and that opened up the interior. So you've got that connection that opens up the central part of Vermont, um, and then you get into the 1770s, and now the, the whole Vermont dispute uh, occurs, and where you've got a uh, settlers in Vermont claiming independence from New York and New Hampshire. Both New York and New Hampshire claimed what's now Vermont. And uh, so the uh, New Hampshire grants is what was called Vermont, referring to the towns that New Hampshire granted within Vermont. Um, you have a whole dispute going on between New Hampshire and New York with uh, the Vermonters, Ethan Allen, the Green Mountain Boys is the, the most well-known group of Vermonters in the middle. And that lasts and the outbreak of the American Revolution basically puts a, it doesn't bring a, um, an end to that dispute, but it, it halts it and slows it down um, with the outbreak of the Revolution. Mike, you're probably the, the expert on this. When you study the sources, when you look at the people who live in Vermont, uh, there always is something unique about them. I've always truly believed it. I know people say that a lot, but I do believe it. Uh, look at even the state today. We, Vermont is one of the only states in the Union in a time when you're all red or all blue that is electing independent officials uh, to go to Washington, D.C. Uh, and you see that that streak really go all the way back. So let me ask you as a native, where does that 
independent street come from in the state of Vermont? Sure, it uh, it is true that uh, you know that there is something of an independent streak here, and it it does date back to like you're saying, it does date back to that that 18th 18th century. Uh, this this region that became Vermont was pretty much isolated from the rest of the world. You've got the White Mountains and the Green Mountains between. Um, much of Vermont and um, the coastline, uh, you have to travel several, you know, several score of miles, hundreds or so miles uh, south to get to the coast. Um, yeah, you've got the Connecticut River and you've got the Hudson River and Lake Champlain as highways. But basically, the settlers up in this region were isolated. They they were almost forced into being an independent entity on their own, that, that autonomy that I was mentioned earlier uh, really takes hold in this region. And then once you, you get the, the conflict between New York and New Hampshire developing, then a number of those folks start saying, well, wait a minute, you know, we don't want to really be with either one of those. So you've got the, uh, the so-called Republic of Vermont uh, that develops in 1777 in the last 14 years. So uh, it, uh, it's kind of inbred in the, uh, the development of the region. And the geography, geology plays a role too because of the mountains uh, forcing people. Uh, today we, we hop in a car and we drive hundreds of miles in, in Vermont here to go, I live on the west central part of Vermont. For me to get to the Connecticut River Valley on the east side, I get across the Green Mountains. I hop in a car and it's no problem. But 220, 250 years ago, that was a problem. I had to cross over the Green Mountains and that was a big deal. So, uh, it's, you're living in this region, you're almost forced to be independent. And it's, it's carried on down through the, through the centuries. Historians often find themselves engaging in these side debates about regional supremacy in the American Revolution. That is to say, which region of the United States, uh, the Northeast, uh, the South, the Chesapeake Bay, was most important uh, in terms of the outcome of the war. But that debate really ends, at least for 1777, because we see the beginning of the Saratoga Campaign. So if we could, let's talk a little bit about the Saratoga campaign and really what the overall goals were uh, for the British at the time. Yeah, it depends on who you talk to on the British side. Uh, there were some um, with the Burgoyne campaign, there were some that were hoping to, uh, to split New England, uh, New England being the hotbed of the revolution, the the origination of the of the revolution they were hoping to split new england off from the rest of the colonies and then uh, the term is defeat in detail they would uh, they would be able to hopefully defeat new england uh, and once new england fell then the rest of the colonies would kind of come into line um, some some of the british were hoping for that others were hoping that uh, that um, Burgoyne would uh, would draw off American forces and supplies um, from Washington's forces down around New York City 
and allow the the British forces in New York to defeat Washington, uh, uh, Washington's army that was surrounding, uh, trying to surround New York. And others were hoping to uh, that the Burgoyne campaign would again draw forces and supplies from the Americans and allow the British to get down and capture Philadelphia, the, the capital of the rebelling colonies, which is which is ultimately what what happened in this case. So that uh, there were several different angles that the the British were were hoping the Burgoyne campaign would accomplish. In your opinion. Do you think they actually accomplished any of those goals? <laughs> uh, not really. Uh, by 1777, the the rebellion had uh, taken hold in the other colonies. So just trying to split New England off was was really not going to be a successful uh, strategy in the first place. Um, yes, Burgoyne's force uh, his invasion into uh, into the Champlain Valley and, and getting to within 25 miles of Albany uh, sure did uh, attract and draw off a lot of uh, American supplies and troops from Washington's forces but the British never um, never took advantage of that situation um, General Howe who was in charge in New York uh, never really moved north. He eventually went down to Philadelphia, and that aspect of uh, of the British strategy did succeed. He did capture Philadelphia, but as far as the the rest of the strategy, no, it, it never really it had no success. I published a book in 2015 called Hessians, published with West Home Publishing. Uh, and a lot of that book, no surprise, took place in and around the region that we're talking about today. And of course, a big part of it was at the Battle of Saratoga. And one of the things that always struck me was that when you look at Burgoyne's army in 1777, it is not your traditional British army, at least not the one we think of. You have British, you have loyalists, you have Indians, you have Germans. Um, what kind of challenges does an army comprised of so many different people posed to historians when you're trying to research and write about it. Yeah, there, there are some, uh, there are some pretty good challenges. Uh, the, the study of history involves, uh, you know, finding primary sources, finding, finding original documents and maps and such, uh, to answer the questions. Um, when the, I don't know if it's a challenge. Uh, one of the advantages is that there are so many perspectives. As you say, you've got the British regulars, you've got German troops, uh, you've got loyalists, you've got Indians. Uh, you know, so you've got different angles that are uh, giving you different perspectives on it. But uh, by the same token, uh, you know, you've got American and English, and including loyalist sources that are pretty readable, readily available for us. Uh, here in, in America, but if you go to look at the German sources or the, the Spanish or French or Dutch, um, they are in Europe, they're in a foreign language, so uh, that's a bit of a challenge, and so uh, there's more and more becoming available, but you still, if you don't know the language, 
you're going to have a challenge uh, finding uh, that information or determining that information. Indian sources, it's virtually non-existent. About they didn't they didn't have written language. Uh, most of their history is verbal, so you can get some from that. But uh, pretty much for Indian information, Native peoples information, about all that you can do is rely on. Um, writings from European sources who uh, served with the Indians or the Indians talked to them and told them their stories. So uh, um, that's there are challenges, there are advantages as well, but there are some uh, some challenges for sure. We've talked already at length about how hard it is just to live in the wilderness of the Northeast. I have to ask you, Mike, and reading some of your articles, I think you're an authority on this. How do you fight a war in those places? That was one of the challenges for the British, not so much for the British. They had fought here in the earlier wars, the you know the French and Indian Wars and such uh, in the early uh, 18th century. But uh, when the Germans came over here, they're used to European warfare where you have massive armies of Tens of thousands of guys uh, fighting together in the classical um, shoulder-to-shoulder line uh, troops uh, firing volleys under strict control, uh, opposing each other, lines opposing each other. There's very little open space in, in the Northeast in particular, and it's so much wooded that it it prevented a lot of that action and action in that form. Um, there was Hubberton, the Battle of Hubberton in July of 1777. There was a line action there. Uh, the battles of Saratoga, the two battles at Saratoga featured some line action, but most of the fighting in this area was in what's called open order uh, in the woods. Uh, you know, it's, it's close-up action. It's not. You, lots of times, you, you don't see large numbers of your enemy. So it it is. It's a totally different uh, type of warfare. And the Germans, in particular, had problems dealing with that. Uh, the British, like I said, they had experienced it in the earlier wars, so they had some knowledge of it. They knew how to deal with it. One of the old traditional axioms that you always hear, and I'm guilty of this too, uh, when we talk about any historical event, but especially the Battle of Saratoga, is that we always seem to refer to it as a turning point in the American Revolution. Let me ask you, in your opinion, uh, no pressure, was it the turning point in the war? Uh, I hate to go against the... A couple of centuries of, of uh, accepted wisdom, but I really don't think Burgoyne's defeat had that much of an impact on the eventual result, uh, the, the formation of the United States. It, it certainly had an impact on the conduct of the war and the, the politics of the time, but the end, end result, I feel, would have, would have happened anyways. The United States would have formed up. Uh, I think... Really, you know, the the battles at Saratoga, the Burgoyne campaign, and uh, the the failure of Burgoyne's campaign, and the subsequent uh, support 
that France offered us, the open support France offered us in uh, early 1778, certainly had an impact on the conduct of the war, but I think it was eventually, Eventually, it was inevitable. What uh, what was going to happen was inevitable. The the real the real problem was uh, for the British uh, was the failure of the eff efforts in the early 1770s at maintaining the that familial connection between Great Britain and the colonies. Um, that failure you know, preordained the result of the formation of the United States. Mike, so far I have to say you've been a great ambassador for your state. Uh, what would you say to someone who's never been to Vermont, who doesn't know anything about it, in terms of why this place is very important for the development of the United States of America? Well, I really think, again, kind of going, going back to what I said, is there's so much that happened here. The, the When the Europeans came into this region um, in the 17th century and into the 18th century, they realize the significance of this of this area, and so there's there is a lot to see here historically, um, and a, a lot of of what transpired in the 18th century. The evidence is still is still clear. Uh, you can still see it in this uh, in this in this region. You can almost feel it, for that matter. Uh, so it it's. It's one of the reasons I, you know, I'm fascinated by this this area. I love doing this show so far, only two episodes in, because it's really just historians talking to each other. And and for a lot of people out there who love history or who are historians, you don't ever really get the chance to sit down with someone like you all the time. Uh, so there's one question I have found, no matter where I go, that historians always ask each other. So I'll make it part of the show from here on out. Mike, what are you working on next? Yeah, I've got uh, a couple of things going on uh, right now. I am uh, I am dealing with an article on Samuel Holland, uh, who was the Surveyor General for the English for the northern what's called the Northern District. It's the area of the colonies north of the Potomac River, and his job was to map uh, primarily the coastline and the major rivers. Of uh, of the colonies north of the Potomac, so I'm I'm working on that one. Uh, I have a piece on uh, American prisoners held in England that I've been working on for ages, but I've just got so much information. It's uh, it's it's almost to the point of not being able to see the see the forest for the trees kind of thing. So I'm I'm whittling that down as I go, and I've also got. Lots of ideas. I've been transcribing documents, uh, 18th century documents, uh, lately for a couple of historic sites, and uh, they're giving me all kinds of ideas. So there's, I've got quite a lot floating around in my feeble mind here. Well, that's a wrap for Dispatches Episode 2. Mike Barbieri, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure and my honor. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.